everybody, check it out. Anchor by Spotify is the easiest way to start a podcast. It has all the tools in one place that you need right from your phone or computer to edit and publish your podcast. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listing platforms such as Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started now. I'm using it right along with you. You're listening to The Frankie Files. FrankieFilesPodcast.com. Hey, everybody, this is Frankie, your host of Frankie Files Podcast. And I just want to let you know that season one is wrapping up, but we're not going away. We'll be back in February of 2023 with season two, but we're not quite done with season one. In episode 40 coming up, I'll be doing a season one recap, remix, episode one through 39, you'll hear the best moments from every single show. It's been an amazing journey. I've had some incredible guests and I've also had some episodes listened to that let me know what you want to hear more of. I truly believe you want more researched essays. One of my best listened to episodes was victim shaming episode two, and I can't wait to bring you more. In the meanwhile, Every Sunday on Reddit from 1 to 2 p.m. Pacific time, I'm going to be continuing interviews with people on cults, survivors, activists, experts here and there. I encourage you to join me and jump in on the conversation. It's an audio chat. All you need is the link to join. You can also access it from the desktop. The group this takes place in on Reddit is called Cult Podcasts. So it's r forward slash cult podcasts if you're on Reddit searching. It's been a really great resource and a place to talk about what's going on with cults in the news and to hear survivor stories. It is a safe for work forum so you can listen at work. From the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for all the support that you've given me to get to this point. Another major thing is happening. October 28th, I'll be featured in a long-form interview on Cult Vault Podcast. And you can check that out at cultvaultpodcast.com, everywhere you hear podcasts. I hope you go hear that story. It was not easy telling my story. I'm here to do this, though. My cautionary tale came at a price. And if I could stop other people from experiencing what I experienced... Since there's nothing in place that checks on kids in cults, that's what I'm going to do. So check out Cult Vault Podcast, October 28th. That's going to be a, a release of my story. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 39 of Frankie Files Podcast. Well, it's fourth Friday, and that means we're going to talk about cult kids. Instead of going to school, some kids went to Synanon, a rehab facility turned cult that revolutionized teen industry in many ways, positively and negatively. Our special guest 
is two members of the Crawford family intrinsically involved in Synanon. Sari Crawford, host of the Sunshine Plates, and her mother, Sylvia Crawford, also featured as a guest on the podcast. I'm super happy to bring to you today this amazing dialogue. Enjoy. First, I'd like to say welcome to Frank Brown's podcast. We're excited to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. You're on a very, very new project called The Sunshine Place about Synanon. Instead of talking about Synanon and the show, first I'd just ask you how you got started in participating in the show as the narrator. You know, it's a little cliche, but I've just been very fortunate and blessed. The studio, Cadence 13, um, C13 Originals is a sub-studio of Cadence 13, and they had been reaching out to interview different people you know, about Citadon and kind of doing their own organic journalistic work, which was very admirable and taking the time to listen to a plethora of voices and, you know, takes on Citadon since it's such a complicated community. And, you know, I wanted to reach out because I wanted to make sure that this was going to be a quality production because, you know, my mom was going to be in it and I'm sure my dad would come up and Sometimes in, in these productions of Synanon, it's either one way or the other. It's either, you know, just the good or just the bad. And there's mm-hmm. no dichotomy in it. And mm-hmm. um, there's not a lot of organic research. And I wanted to make sure that that was what this was. And it is. And it's fantastic if, you know, people get to listen. I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of the studio as well. So I reached out and I did a short interview. And actually, the studio asked me to narrate. And I was just honored and blessed and fortunate to um, be on board with the project. That's a cool story. Because what stands out is the multiple interviews and recordings of interviews of people who've been there. And it's true. What you just said was so evident to me as a person who doesn't know much about Synanon, but did grow up in Nicole and heard a lot about it at that time. And we knew a lot was going on there. Some good, some bad. But yeah, it dives into clearly what drew people there, how each person kind of got there, the different types of attendees. Well, I'm loving your hosting. The narration is, you know, and the show is so well produced. It's really nice. I really think they did a good job. Always excited to put those earbuds in and start play on this one. (laughs) Just to see the high production value. We don't all have that budget. You've got executive producers, Robert Downey Jr., yeah, um, that was great. I actually did not know about that until we already recorded like episode four. It was casually said to me, you know, mm-hmm. by the way, and I was like, well, that's a that's a big deal. But it had nothing to do with me being interested in the project. But um, I think people think that this production is a high value production. But, you know, it, it's a quality production. But a lot of it is very grassroots. Um, our okay. head writer, Perry Kroll. Um, he did a lot of the interviews and writing and directing, and a lot of it is very personal and not just this big studio with some big budget, um, which I liked because, it, you know, he was able to do, um, have a lot of creativity with it and, and able to do a lot with people. And whatever impression you have, it's really, really a grassroots sort of um, uh, studio. Yeah, we hear the name Robert Jenny Jr. and think, well, at least this will stay around, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I mean, there's so much to talk about. So let's get into that. Um, your parents are founding members or okay. original members? Yeah. So my dad was one of the original 12 members. Yeah. So he was there from the very beginning. My mm -hmm. mom came um, later. She came about 10 years later. So mm -hmm. she came when Lifestylers were started to be added to Synanon. My dad was right. a dope fiend, and he right. entered as a dope fiend. But my mom was never a dope fiend. She entered as a Lifestyler. Mm-hmm. Opposite ends of the spectrum. So, okay, so your dad and mom met in Synanon. Yes, actually, um, they did. Uh, my mom was doing a, um, the story is my mom was doing a play in Synanon. It was an Adam and Eve play, and she was the snake. Uh, my dad watched the play, and the story is that he fell in love with her. Uh -huh. play. <laughs> and they're still together. Unfortunately, my dad passed away in 2004. Okay. Oh, my condolences. I think he would be proud of this project. I really do. Okay. Now, as a Synanon-adjacent kid, because you were born after your parents left, right? You must have talked to a lot of people about Synanon through your life answered a lot of questions. What kind of questions do you get and what is this social experiment? How has it affected your life? The institution of Sidanon yeah. ended in 1991, but the community lives on and the community is still very much breathing and vibrant mm -hmm. and together. And Sidanon, I always like to say, is a state of mind. It's not a place, it's a state of mind. And you're mm -hmm. either in it or you're out of it and it's in your head. Um, and I was raised by many members of uh, the Synanon community and learned about it and whatnot growing up. Um, things like the game, um, of course, a watered-down version. You know, there were a couple times where I, I, I wasn't so nice as a kid, and my dad would, you know, play the game or uh, members, other members I would be with. And uh, I remember John Stallone, him, his grandson and I were fighting, so he had a little game with us. So things like that, you know, playing the game kind of entered. We always had the Synanon prayer um, on our wall. To be clear, it's not a religious prayer, so to speak. It, it's very fluid. Some people take it religiously. Some people take it metaphorically. Some people take it spiritually. But it came about to bring together the community, not so much as a, a prayer to some higher entity. Because it's a lifestyle and it was a commune lifestyle where everyone lived under one uh, several roofs and properties and abided by the same sort of conduct and code, right? Then did your folks, and, you know, spoiler alert, your folks left sitting on the purpose of this interview, I wanted to get a sequence. Then did you live in a commune-type environment after your folks left Synanon? No, no. Um, when they left Synanon, you know, things were very tense. Um, I don't want to give too much away from the episode. But, um, you know, that they did have to make some separation. So I grew up relatively normally, you know, in a, in a home, you know. Um, now we did homestead, you know, and we had some practices that my mom and dad brought with them from, from communal living, working together, growing our own fruits and vegetables, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. But I, my sisters grew up in Synanon, but I didn't live in a you know, commune or anything like that. But it was very interesting that, you know, the Synanon people considered me as, you know, one of their own, as another kid to raise, just like they would, you know, in the community if it still existed. 
Well, that's what you were getting into in episode six. Fascinating. I know about cults and dangerous thinking. So I'm saying, as I'm listening, wow, this is teetering on insanity, (laughs) some of their (laughs) decisions, you know, uh, which, of course, I don't want to give away. How have you been personally shaped two decades of your parents being in Synanon? So that's 20 years plus, right? That's a lot of, uh, of philosophy and experimenting socially that they did. <laughs> What's that been like for you? It's not exactly a traditional upbringing for you, is it? Right. Um, you know, there were many positives that they brought in teaching me. Um, you know, my dad built a lot of play structures for the kids in Synanon, and he built me one on our property. Um and he used a lot of the tools that he learned, you know, working with the school to raise me that were very positive. Getting to grow our own fruits and vegetables, getting to learn how to live within our community, things like that. There were a lot of positives that I think they brought out of Synanon, um, you know, that grounded them in um, education and, you know, helping others and things like that. The other thing is that, uh, you know, Synanon since the way that they left, the way that they, um, you know, hurt my parents towards the end because my parents did have to flee. My dad watched his back a lot. And that was a little difficult as a kid because I didn't understand entirely the things that were happening. Like one time my dad and I, we were out feeding the chickens in the the back and this old truck pulls up, right? Very slowly to the back of the property. And my dad says, you know, run as fast as you can to the house. And, you know, you you never know if that was something bad, something good. I think he was always watching himself because, um, you know, they would call him in the middle of the night. And I I don't think he would tell my mom everything. And then he would, you know, take some uh, guns with him and things like that. And, you know, he was very, very liberal and, you know, anti-gun, but um, also knew that he had to protect me. And, you know, things like that, you know, uh, I could see that in my childhood. if someone was was going to come after him. In relation to the Synanon progression, because it was anti-violence at first, and only later, I guess it's the second decade, you'll have to straighten me out on that, but later uh, violence became a norm. But I can see how your father was like, I don't want to make that progression. Yes. Um. So So that is the biggest thing here to understand is that for 15 years, I mean, more than 15 years, Synanon was a therapeutic community. Um, you know, there was some unorthodox, experimental, you know, therapies like the game. You know, it didn't always start out so intense, you know. So so there, there was some things that people might find questionable now. But for the most part, you know, it saved many lives. And it was, um, mm-hmm. you know, this this living, breathing way to transform yourself positively in the first episode you guys go into those rescues those those dopatic rescues where people were either alcohol uh, induced or or you know heroin often Mm -hmm. and they were going to die if they didn't get help and they would come in and you guys sitting on knew how to detox them and how to process that is interesting Yeah. And they would, you know, be hungry and homeless sometimes and come in, what they would call, you know, the back door, you know, they'd have to rebuild their entire lives. And they were treated like people and given jobs and given tasks and 
given responsibilities that otherwise they would either just be nobodies in society and have nothing to work towards, die or be put in jail. You know what I mean? The violence started really probably around 1978. It was a gradual sort of violence, not just overnight. And a lot of that had to do with Chuck relapsing as an alcoholic. And mm-hmm. it was like an addict leading it turned into chaos. And early, I wanted to chat a little bit back. You said that some addicts would come in the back door, but also some were sent by parents or courts as a rehab program? Yes. So as Synanon started building a reputation, you know, uh, even senators, celebrities would come Mm. just to show support. Um, It really was like a revolutionary thing. You're listening to The Frankie Files, frankiefilespodcast.com. Yeah. I wanted to lead into CDU, if we could mm-hmm. talk about that a bit. I don't know much about CDU specifically. I know of it. I know it's part of the troubled teen industry. It was founded by an ex-member of Synanon. What I will say is I can speak from my own experience and that, you know, um, I, I was put in some of these, um, you know, TTIs, troubled teen institutions in my childhood. And, you know, I was, I was kind of a difficult kid. And, um, you know, I don't blame my parents because, you know, they tell one thing to the parents. They tell the parents it's very therapeutic. Um, it's going to be okay. You know, things like that. And these weren't necessarily based off of Synanon. But you could say that largely the TTI community, the troubled teen institution community started its roots from Synanon. Um, And I think they were hoping that I would take, you know, the positive things that they would learn. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I do know that a lot of things happened behind closed doors. I know Paris Hilton was abused. You know, there was one time I was put in solitary confinement for three weeks and I was 10 years old. And Mm -hmm. that really changed me a lot. And, you know, some of this tough love stuff can work, but not always. Not every parent knows, like, you know, even Paris Hilton's mom didn't know. I mean, I was just watching a movie last night where they uh, abduct a child in the middle of the night and take them to an outdoor setting to learn life skills and basically isolate them until they behave. Yeah. This has become a thing now, and it, it just seems so unhealthy. I mean, unless you're physically violent, it's going to make you more depressed, right? Yeah, I had an interesting message. One of the positive things that has come out of the Sunshine Place, I mean, I'm sure there's many, but one woman reached out to me after the first episode and said, oh my God, my little brother was sent to one of these places that um, some ranch in Texas based off of Synanon and he's been Mm -hmm. isolated for two months. They're, They're telling my parents it's okay, but we listened to that podcast and now we're very concerned. And I just said, you know, honestly, I don't know what's going on in there. So I can't tell you one way or another. I can say that my sister's experience with the tough love wasn't therapeutic for them as children mm-hmm. because they learned to be hard and they learned to be a small adult. And I think they lost a lot of their childhood that way. Yeah, they were parentified really early. You're really um, getting more into the first question about how it's affected your life long term. 
How many mm-hmm. sisters do you have? I have, well, in, in, from my dad, I ha- he has two daughters, uh, Rebecca mm-hmm. and Naomi, and they were uh, born and raised in Synodon. You were surrounded by people who were in Synodon for decades. Yes, yes. So you were and almost like in Synodon. I'm in it in a state of mind, I, that's what yeah. I say, because, you know, there's people yeah. that were there for, you know, two days, two weeks, and, you know, didn't understand it, left, you know, I think I'm... I understand the community better than some of those people. I do too, uh, just from listening. Okay, so now we're talking about the phases that Synodon went through due to Chuck's own changes in his life, whether it be the death of his wife or his own addiction struggle. And one of them, at some point, a policy changed where he no longer graduated people who became sober, but sought to keep them as a commune. Yes, I don't think it initially started as Chuck trying to be possessive about people. The idea behind it was that, you know, addicts, you know, and this is very interesting because, you know, there was very little knowledge about the disease of addiction back then. You were thrown in jail. You were the low life. Nobody treated you medically or emotionally. Chuck really thought, you know, the idea was that you're always an addict, which we now know is the truth. You always, you can be sober, but you're always an addict. He thought, you know, graduating somebody was was not good enough because when we graduated somebody, Mm -hmm. it was like, okay, you're not an addict anymore. Goodbye. See ya. Forget the graduations. Mm. We're just, you know, if people want to stay and live in a sober community, and now, you know, we talk about halfway houses now, sober community and stay on board and, you Mm -hmm. know, great. If they want to leave fine, but, you know, it'd be better for them to stay in a sober community. Yeah, that's interesting because, like you said, it is a stigma for life, sort of like someone who has a felony. Will society let you be someone else, you know? And so just the idea of giving people jobs that knew, you know, they know what each other's gone through, very interesting. And there was discipline and there was rules so that they couldn't steal, thieve, etc., And I'm also kind of like glad hearing the podcast doesn't seem like there is lifestyle changes and uh, people being told what to do with their anatomy by Chuck. But there isn't a lot of, may I say, sexual abuse. I'm almost like relieved (laughs) to hear, you know, and I hope I'm right. Not that I know of between the adults, but, you know, there's 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 a gray area and Synanon is full of gray areas. And, mm-hmm. and, and like the podcast says, it really just depends on who you ask, because could there have been children abused? Absolutely. And the problem mm-hmm. is we don't know because they were isolated and they were, you know, raised by men and women and people that they didn't know and didn't know them. Mm-hmm. So is it possible? Absolutely. But, you know, um, that's that's their own journey. But it's, you know, it's sad because anytime you isolate a child um, and make them fear you, you know, especially mm-hmm. when they started the punk squad and hitting the kids and things like that, you know, they, these are things that we just don't know. And, and probably there is some, but we don't know. Uh, but you could also say that changing partners was a form of sexual abuse because they would Definitely. have to leave the community if they didn't do it. And there is a sense of sexual violation. My mom didn't want to do that. And her and her right. partner spent the night crying. I can imagine the couples that felt 
you know, violated afterwards, feeling like they had to do it. It's like a commune with a lifestyle and a little bit of a totalist leader <laughs> telling people what to do with their anatomy. Why is that ever appropriate? Oh, well, and the vasectomies were hundreds. Who is the one who goes to local law enforcement? May I talk about this? Bill Ritter, I think he was a hero. You know, I think he stood up for what he thought was genuinely right. And in this case, it was something so deeply personal and so deeply heinous that I think, um, it, you know, it, I wouldn't even say it was a case of snitching. It was a case of standing up for what was right, absolutely. To get into this, um, when Chuck decides that, uh, you know, kids are really not profitable to birth kids into the cult, into the lifestyle, um, into Synanon. Uh, there's mass doctor, I guess, that he knew brought in to do mass vasectomies. Incredible. So this Phil goes to the sheriff to make a report. And the sheriff is in the pocket of Chuck in Synanon and doesn't make the report. And also doesn't believe that it's a bad thing to snip a drug addict or a former drug addict. That really said so much. That story illustrated to me why cults get a hands-off a lot of times from law enforcement. It's like, that's your community. Handle it yourself. Yeah, and it empowered Chuck because in a way, he was the only one that seemed to care about, you know, the addicts. And he was the, and you can imagine a, a person mm. trying to feel whole again and the entire society is like, we don't care what happens to you. We don't care what happens to your body. And Chuck's yeah. like, you matter. I'm going to build you up. I'm going to give you responsibility. And I can very easily see how, you know, that community could rally behind Chuck and say, you believe in us and we believe in you. What a mind space uh, to be led into. And then you're at this decision point, as you talk about in the episode, there were people that were so young, the doctor or others were saying, wait a minute, this is too early for them to make this decision. Yeah. They don't even know if they want kids. Moment in history there. The rehab turned into drug experimentation. Uh, through my studies, there was LSD-guided trips. And of course, you talk about this just a little bit um, in early. I know you're going to dive more into it. I just know it. <laughs> but the major change just appealing to the lifestylers hippies and commune type people who were not previous drug addicts he wanted to lead them on lsd guided trips how was that justified or had you talked to your parents or others about that great question so my mom and i um we didn't really talk about it honestly we, i'm learning a lot you know as of late as an adult having a relationship with her so asking mm -hmm. her more of these questions from my understanding is that before Synanon, Chuck had um, been part of a LSD guided study from a university. He was, you know, a test subject and it's kind of kind of like Clockwork Orange. You know, they signed him up and they did it. And he made this like mental breakthrough with it. You know, and now microdosing psychedelics is coming back as a therapeutic method. So whether or not there's there's therapy in it, you know, I can't officially say, but, you know, mm -hmm. he found some breakthrough in it. He thought, you know, it would be good to pass this on, you know, to his followers. However, you know, he was not trained like a professor or the people that, you know, were doing this experiment with him. 
And I think he really just was kind of seeing, you know, throwing it at the wall and seeing what stuck. Some people found it amazing. It might have set some other people back. And as Synodon progressed, drugs started going back into the community. That was one of the first things that was hitting the market. Devastating for the original intention. 180. As things got violent, it was, you know, you're either on board or you're not. You're in or you're out. Um, I'm sure he wanted the old timers to stay because, you know, he trusted these people. He'd he'd invested a lot in these people like my father. You know, my father helped build the place for 20 years. And when he left, you know, he said, "I, I helped build this place. But I think ideally Chuck would have liked them to get on board. But people like my father, who didn't start this way, just really was opposed to the violence and had to had to leave. And Chuck said, you know, good riddance, kid, or something along those lines, after 20 years of service, you know, kind of squeezed them out by default. But there were some old timers that stayed, like Miriam Bordet and, um, you know, a few others. But they changed their philosophy. But a lot of that was, you know, they really followed Chuck to the end following wherever he goes, not the original intention of the community. What a wild ride they took. Right. And he did hit on something because he was so desperate as an alcoholic that he wanted to create something, I think, maybe to make sure he didn't drink again, too. Yes, that's how it definitely started. Um, um, it was just him making these meetings, you know, in his apartment, and he was on unemployment, and he had, like, you know, a handful of people that would just meet at his apartment and he would start playing, you know, these, you know, forebears of the of the the game, so to speak. And that's how he really got sober and stayed sober. And I could see how he would want to share that philosophy with the world. When his wife died, um, he didn't have the tools or he, you know, something happened and he reneged on his sobriety. And instead of people stepping up in the way of... Um, you know, telling him he needs to get back on the bandwagon. He was the mm-hmm. leader and they kind of just followed him. And it was, like I said, a gradual thing. It wasn't overnight. In the chaos, somebody could get lost. The group is a powerful thing, that peer pressure element. Yeah, we got sure. this going. We, we want to keep it going. We live here. We work here. Everything's tied up in this. And they had, you know, millions of dollars of, of finances. So this wasn't just like some halfway right. house, you know, um, in the poor side of town, these were, you know, they had an airstrip, they had facilities, they had schools. Okay. And you're talking about people that were, you know, homeless and had no future that all of a sudden were part of this place for free that they could, you know, thrive yeah. in. This scene described in the um, podcast about going and buying over 100 guns, creating an mm-hmm. instant militia. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, this little sleepy area in... It was Marin County. Santa Monica was where my parents were at the time, but there was one in Marin County was Tamales Bay, and that was Sprawling Ranch. And that's where all the sort of secretive stuff happened because it was so isolated. You know, but there was Mm -hmm. also a seawall district in San Francisco and, you know, one in New York and all over the place, really. Some of the discussion of the, you know, war games and things they were learning in those deserted areas or sprawling property. The need to become militant said so much about where this place was going in the latter half, which is so different. You're listening to The Frankie Files, frankiefilespodcast.com.
I have a list of terms that you could help us out with since you're our narrator for Sunshine Plates. And there's so much terminology for Synanon, little catchy marketing names for each initiative. So first, uh, Imperial Marines, the new punk squad or? No, well, the punk squad were quote unquote bad kids. The Imperial Marines were people that Chuck had handpicked to sort of be the, originally to be the protectors of Synanon, kind of like its own little militia. And it later turned into sort of a, you know, Chuck's little personal gang to carry out his uh, unfortunate bidding. Because Chuck felt, you know, who's going to come help a bunch of addicts if they ever get in trouble? So we need to have our own protection. The game. The game was a therapeutic, well, he started out as a therapeutic way for people to fully express themselves and be able to say whatever they wanted to each other with the exception of no threats of violence. And it was a free space uh, to get people to kind of open up. It gradually morphed into longer games that would um, involve sleep deprivation and things like that to kind of coerce people into, um, you know, spilling their heart and soul. Um, And then kind of uh, when violence started, you were then allowed to make threats of violence. Um, So it, It was a way of helping addicts and then sort of turned into a way to coerce people of um, saying sort of their deeper, darker secrets that sometimes Chuck would later use against them. And I think that became attack therapy, the term in psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, in the game, quick question, in the game, it later became recorded and broadcast over the property? Yeah, so not even later. Um. Once we started getting multiple facilities, Synanon, um, everything was over the wire. And, and, mm-hmm. and even before the violence, there was something called Perpetual Stew. And the Perpetual Stew was a 24-7 game. And people hopped in, hopped out on, like, uh, dog watches, like, uh, like Marines, you know. And they would mm-hmm. hop in, hop out on, like, four-hour cycles and um, be broadcast 24-7 on the wire. Um, and, and it was like a regular radio show, too. So creative, I got to say. Yeah. Boot camp. I don't want to missay anything. That's sort of a broad term. But, um, yeah, the kids would say they were in boot camp. You know, if they were in the punk squad, they were in boot camp. It was just sort of either a way mm-hmm. to train people or, you know, to get the kids in line. Okay, head suckers. My understanding, sort of just anybody that prevented you from being your whole self, prevented you from, okay. um, you know, so like, so, so your child could be a head sucker because they could, you know, take you away from being a productive member of society. They mm-hmm. could take you away from fulfilling your full potential. Anybody that brings you down, anybody that takes you off the path of what Chuck thought would be your full potential. Lifestylers. Lifestylers were non-drug addicts who came into society. They were also they were also called squares who lived in the community mm-hmm. and just believed in in what Sinan stood for. And they brought money. Most oh of the yeah. Time. Uh, and the ones that didn't have money, um, they had like sell a certain amount usually before they were even welcomed mm. in. They would check in every now and then and see if Chuck would let them in sales how many games they did etc etc so you know money was definitely a motivator becoming popular really helped 
out for new recruiting. Wow. Everyone wanted to be there, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. Um, Bill Olin, he's passed away, unfortunately, but he wrote a great book called um, Escape from Utopia. And it, and it kind of explains a lot of this because he and his wife were lifestylers and it okay. explains a lot about how they had to do those sort of things to, to get into the community and, um, okay. you know, uh, what the pressures were put on them um, that were different than if you came in as a drug addict. Okay, splitting. So splitting was just anybody who left. And um, even in the beginning, there were, uh, they like to call them splitties. You know, drug addicts could would come and they'd start kicking on the couch and throwing up and being dope sick. And some of them were like, this is too much. And they would just leave. And it was very frowned upon. And you couldn't just like come back and be welcomed back you would have to be almost hazed to get back into the community because once you weren't loyal, you know, it, it, you'd have to show that you really wanted back in. Um, so okay. that was a concept even from the beginning. The father principle. I don't know, but I do know that um, Chuck had a thing about, um, you know, Oedipus complex. And mm -hmm. that was a big part of the game and a big part of therapy and accused a lot of people of that. So I don't know mm -hmm. what the father principle is, but I, I, it would make sense. It has something to do with um, the need to follow. What about the wire? The wire was the radio station that we talked about um, broadcast. And it was like a real radio station. They would play music. They would play the game. And my father actually, um, he, he was Sergeant Radio. And that was his sort of alias on the radio. And he, his job for a while was to, to have a radio program. Uh, when changing partners happened, it's kind of a side note, but when okay. changing partners happened, he would get over the wire and he would say, good night, Mrs. Cabbage. And that was my uh -huh. mom's alias. My mom's alias was Mrs. Cabbage because he wasn't allowed to, you know, express that to her when they changed partners. That is so sad, my friend. Yeah, but also sweet. Also sweet. It's very. They found a way. You know, The Wire originated from one of the locations, and was it also uh, published to the nation, other locations of Sinem, or was it like a local? How did that work? Um, it was all the locations. Chuck actually had a microphone on his uh, uh, table, and he would just get a bunch of ideas in his head, and he would just get on The Wire and start you know, spewing some ideas, you know, no matter what was going on or what was broadcasting. And he always had a microphone somewhere and he would, um, uh, he would always kind of just pop on, especially towards the end when his thoughts got a little more scattered. Yeah. And just wow. spew whatever he wanted and people would listen. It reminds me of, as I'm learning about indoctrination and brainwashing, one of the really favorite tactics is endless chanting or uh, speeches or sermons. This is, <laughs> 24-7, that's a lot of indoctrination. And I can imagine like how intimidating it was to hear the game, everybody screaming at each other and everything on the wire. I know some people liked it, liked the chaos, and some people felt probably, I would, feel pretty intimidated by that. Synanon kids, is that the ones that grew up in Synanon or... Any kid that was in the school or any kid born there, any kids separated from their parents, um, mm -hmm. we just generically call them that. Hit list. Who was on that? What was that about? I don't want to give anything away from the, the episodes that are coming up. Um, I know my father 
was on it. And, you know, um, that's something that we've kind of uh, alluded to throughout the program. That was um, something from the Imperial Marines were given. My, my parents were in Reno at the time, and all of a sudden their friend called them from Carson City and said, have you seen the paper? And they said, no, what's, what's going on? And, they, and there was an article published in the Carson City paper from a larger newspaper that had uh, said that somebody had testified this was mm-hmm. the hit list. And so there were several people on it, of course, Phil Ritter, as you know, we, we know, and my father and um, a few others. And things got pretty intense from there. It was a, it was, it was a black and white list. Department of Hustlers. What was interesting is that they offered a free flight to rehab from anywhere. That is a new one for me, but Synanon had had millions by then. Um, they could afford it, and and if they think about it, if they um, change somebody's life in such a profound way, person would be loyal to the end, and I don't blame them. If I was homeless and dying, and somebody believed in me and changed my life for the better and gave me responsibility, I'd probably be 100% in too. You're going to invest in this person and they're going to stay. I like the way you phrased it earlier. I'm going to paraphrase them, but, but basically there was a lot of good and a lot of bad that came from Synanon. He hit a nerve because there was a whole, and we still have this now with the fentanyl, you know, and... Uh, pills and oxycontin there's so much addiction that people are not getting the right attention so suddenly he hit a nerve and said you know i know how to take care of you people come on i can see how it was amazingly successful but it's also surprising it went so long and i like to recognize two synonyms there's a synonym from around 1959 to and that was a fantastic, vibrant, loving community that a lot of people have fond, fantastic memories of. And many people left by then and were in and out by then. And that's, you know, the experience that they had. And then there was sort of a second synodon when, when things went downhill. And that was sort of the terrifying one. And my father was great about separating those two synodons. He always said he loved synodon. But when he talked about it that way, he was talking about the community as it was, not mm-hmm. what the community became. And that's why I understand why so many people are outspoken about loving the community, because it was something different. And that's what people have to understand. It was something different than, than what it became in the later 70s. What do you say to fans of the podcast who were learning about it for the first time, learning about Synanon for the first time? What do you say to them? How do you want them to listen? I want them to keep an open mind. I want them to understand that there are lessons that can be taken from Synanon, both positive and cautionary. I think Synanon is too complicated to judge as a whole. It is not just a cult. It is not just a commune. It is not just a rehab community. It is a living, breathing society that people have put their heart and souls into and we need to understand both where things went wrong and why they did and how we can take some of the um, 
positive things that that Synanon pioneered and not dismiss them. And and how do we find that balance? I want people to find a balance. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm fine. Um, I, there were just a, a couple of things that Sari said. I know that she, she did an amazing job. She's been, you know, uh, the, the thing about the wire and uh, Mrs. Cabbage, that was the only thing that, that I wanted to straighten out. So I was actually okay. before changing partners. It was my oh. because this is when Bill and I were first courting. And, um, you know, Synanon had an old-fashioned element to it, too, that there were things like courting, like the old-fashioned. Bill and I were courting, and he was uh, very much involved in The Wire, and uh, he would say goodnight to me on the air. He was after the Monday night games. I know it sounds like football, but mm-hmm. there used to be a big game in Tamales Bay, and uh, that was broadcast. And after the game, Bill would do a recap of the of what went on in the game. And he was a musician. He played jazz and he played Frank Sinatra. And people <laughs> would skip the game and listen to uh, Bill's broadcast. That's why it ended up being called Sergeant Radio's broadcast. So he had like a, a different segments. He had this one woman, I can't think of her name right now, but she, people in Synanon would know. Uh, she was like Heloise, you know, she'd give you tips on how to take out stains from clothing and funny things like that. Okay. And uh, Bill had an incredible funny sense of humor. So so he was Sergeant Radio. People the next day would say, is that you? Is that you? And it was oh. embarrassing. <laughs> so I told him, why don't you figure something out? Kind of like Jimmy Durante, good night, Mrs. Calabash, wherever you are. And that's what he came up with, uh, Mrs. Cabbage, and was just as embarrassing. To say this, you know, we did have a lot of laughs in Synanon. Um, You're listening to The Frankie Files, frankiefilespodcast.com. You know, it's a shame that you can, can't portray. For example, we were very close to Hollywood, and so a lot of the, the movie people would, did come down to our Saturday night parties, got the mm-hmm. first-run movie. So when The Godfather came out, we mm-hmm. had our own movie theater, and uh, it's fun uh, having, you know, watching a movie with a whole community that are your friends, you know? So you had the, the actual reel be brought yes. over... To and you. We, and oh my we watched it before its release, the night mm-hmm. of the that we were showing The Godfather. Uh, we actually played out, in, you know, we dressed up in ga- gang outfits, and there was mm-hmm. a sh- you know a fake shootout in the cafeteria. I mean, in the dining hall, <laughs> uh, we did have a lot of fun. You could do that in the in a community like that, and you could call holiday mm-hmm. anytime you wanted to. Okay, today day off, <laughs> you know. The interesting points about living in a commune where everyone has one thing in common. Yes. We need to take away, too, is that you are not lonely in Synanon. You may not be always happy, and you may, you know, ha- that may have, you know, again, I left in 77. There's a lot of, end of 77, the very beginning of 78, a lot of stuff happened after we left. The dark the, years. Yeah, the very dark years. It started before we left. Yeah. I mean, there was the hay rooms before right. we left, and there was this all this violence right. and the paranoia, you know. 
The hate room was when the community, it's like um, uh, an alarm. Uh, there's fire. There's a threat. There's a threat behind our door in our place in Santa Monica, a baseball bat. And when, when a hey rube was called, the community would get together downstairs and, you know, batten down the hatches. And they, I mean, we practiced this. It didn't actually, never okay. involved in it really happening. But it was a way to protect the community. I mean, Chuck did yeah. feel that outsiders were going to attack us. I didn't know whether that was true or not. Now, whether that was a government agency like the IRS who, you know, ended up coming after us, and, and rightly so, really, there were people that didn't like uh, what we were doing. There was a nonprofit established. Was it filed as a religious group to get the tax exemption? I think it was tax exempt because it was a nonprofit because we were we were helping dope fiends through the ports. You know, we were. Look, I remember the day when I was downstairs. We would get donations of um, uh, outdated food, cheese. You know, that had mold on it. Mm-hmm. And in order to feed this big community, I, we'd be downstairs cutting away the mold and then serving it up. You know. And initially, Sinan was very poor. The people that came in had learned to survive. I mean, dope fiends have to learn to to make it in the world somehow. I think they were, you know, had a a lot of um, moxie and and abilities to think through things. And they all bred. And, you know, the other thing, I don't know if it's going to be talked about on the podcast, but after Sinan started taking in all this food and building materials and all that we gave away truckloads of stuff that people want they had no way of dealing Mm -hmm. with all the stuff that they had to get rid Mm -hmm. of i mean we gave to other organizations literally millions of dollars worth of construction food all the time Mm -hmm. that was in the good days so pre-1978 you know the other facility was in um the home place, which was in, uh, wasn't outside of Badger. Oh, Badger. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. That's where Chuck went to live in Badger. Uh, so we didn't see him that much anymore after that. And I look for that in people now and look for, you know, I live in a 55 and over community now. And, and I like it when people are able to share with one another. You know, we're very... So this... Yeah, we're very... This is still a thing you like from your sitting on day. Well, there were several things. One is the saying, leave it better than you found it. So every sitting on person does this, and if anybody's listening, they'll know it. We don't go anywhere without a trash bag that we pick up stuff. We've learned, leave it better than you found it. I'm a teacher, so I used to tell my kids... Well, I didn't drop it. It's not mine. I don't care who dropped it. Make the world a better place. So hippie oriented. But it was so, and it's still true today. The good part. I'm still walking the roads picking up trash. (laughs) You know, I know Sari knows this. I know all of my children, including my students, know this. We cannot push off on other people what we need to do as Mm -hmm. beings. And I really, I wish, as, as Siri so aptly put, that we could take the good from the, from the synonym, the education. Mm-hmm. You know, we read Emerson all the time. 
We studied Buckminster Fuller, you know, we cared about the environment. Uh, We wanted to make the world. I mean, I did think that Synanon was a form of utopia when I first came there. Then, unfortunately, for whatever reason, and I, I think you can see this in lots of organizations, when you lose your purpose, when you lose your purpose, I ran the newcomer department in Santa Monica for about a year with my friend Gary Williams, and we cared about those people. I don't care how dirty they were. I don't care where yeah. they've been. We showed them love and friendship, and they were no longer lonely. If there's a cure for the drug addiction problem in this country, it's to find a way to not make people be so isolated and alone. And on was the answer to that. I mean, that's the human condition. It is. It needs to be changed because obviously people are dying. Still. Because they're, they're alone. They feel hopeless. Mm-hmm. They don't yep. have... My husband, Bill, would tell me, Betty D., who was the, you know, the founder's wife, because he came in in the early days, she held the bucket, you know, when he was kicking. That's what we did. We surrounded people yeah. with other people. We put, you know, things on their heads so they cooled them off. We put a fan next to them. We didn't have mm-hmm. ways. I mean, I know some of this is kind of harsh. I mean, they kicked cold turkey, which today I don't know if I would very hard on the people. But you know what? Yeah. They were surrounded by loving, caring human beings. And maybe that's mm-hmm. the drug we really need. It is the drug we yeah. need. So, you know. To care about each other. To care. All we need is love. It's really true. We're too <laughs> isolated in this country. We're too divided. We too, mm-hmm. We're full of hate for each other. And it doesn't work for anyone. What drug addict alcoholic, or just a plain person trying to get along in this world. And mom, real quick, yeah. um, what is, because I would like to know too, what was father principle? Well, no. I've never heard that particular term, but, you know, Chuck was the ultimate daddy, big daddy. That's So that's the only thing I could think of that would mean that, you know, you had a man <laughs> and, and the yep. problem with that. Uh, but and Betty was the mother principle. She was the ultimate mother. Whether you were a lifestyle, and I heard it said there were women who came from the game club, and I don't care how wealthy they were, or how uh, mature or immature or anything they were. When they met Betty, they felt loved. She had a way of. Um, being the mother figure. So if he went nuts over something, she said, oh, Chuck, come on, you know. It's not that, <laughs> you know, take it easy. So when she died, it was pretty drastic then. Yeah, she, yeah he had no balance anymore. Uh, the ability to yeah. calm him and to say it's okay. You're listening to The Frankie Files. FrankieFilesPodcast.com Sophia, what was your memory of your first time playing the game? Oh, my God. What was it like? Because this is a strange experience. Okay, so I when I came into Sinanon, Sinanon was smoking. 
And I'm talking about everybody smoked cigarettes, everybody. And so you would walk into a game, and uh, I don't believe I was smoking cigarettes at the time. I was probably smoking other things, but you just, you were asphyxiated by the smoke. And uh, it was terrifying. I mean, these guys were cursing. I wasn't used to that kind of, I learned to curse in Synanon. That I really, I can, <laughs> I can match anybody now, but. Now you're of a sailor mouth? Yes. So I was college educated and I was, you know, I, I was, didn't fit into this thing. But there was something, mm, something very basic, but for something very true about it. Then the rules were that I loved. You could call, you could call out anyone, okay, say the most nastiest, horrible thing to them. And walk out of the game and give them a hug and shake their hand and say, come on, have a cup of coffee. Mm. Did it ever feel really off the wires? Like, uh uh-oh. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I thought that people were going to get up and punch each other out. I mean, some of these thugs from from New York gotten out of jail. I mean, they were angry people. It was scary, really scary. And I didn't say much in the early days. And then when I learned to, to, to start talking in the game, the, the people I respected in Sinon learned how to run their story, which is number one, and be funny. And when you were good at it, you were great. The, thing, the people I respected would come in and say, you know, you are an idiot, but I was an idiot too. There was this camaraderie. I'm okay. just like you. You know, I hmm. wasn't any different than you. I was a dope fiend. I was a, you know, took LSD. I did all those things just like you. Now, I'm mm-hmm. here trying to become a better person. What are you going to do? And that's obviously fictional because you were never a dope fiend, were you? No, I wasn't. I I uh, did take acid and I did smoke pot. Yeah, that was, was the time. Yeah, the 60s and 70s. and Well, 60s because I went into Synanon in 69. But it was so prominent, yeah. Yeah, during my and you know, to be honest with you, I just couldn't handle the drugs. I couldn't, and um, that's one of the big reasons I went to Sinan because it was a. I, I mean, I could have moved into other communities. I was in San Francisco. Where else could you be? With a flower in your hair. With a flower in my hair. You know, I went on protests, marches. I marched uh-huh. in Washington. I really did it all, and then hmm. I realized that my life was falling apart. And that if I kept on this path, the way my, my friends seemed like they could take endless trips, right? I, my brain mm. was, I was losing it. And yeah. a friend of mine told me about cinema. I went down there and I said, this might be the commune I'm looking for, you know? Interesting, historically, because everyone was creating communes at that time. Yeah. It was really the idea that we can create something together was really prominent. People now live in um, apartments and um, condos. They don't even know their neighbors. And I just see us getting more separate. Like technology makes your head in your phone when you're even out. It's it's like, wait, what about the togetherness? <laughs> we need each other. Yeah, we do, and and that will that will make a difference. And and Synanon had. I used to, I didn't know where the word synonym come, came from, and I looked up the words. 
sin, like synthesis together to bring things together, anon, again, now, you know, mm-hmm. together. And wouldn't it be great if communities like that could exist, could exist without going, but, you know, it's always the, it's always this belief in one person. It can't be one person. That greed for power gets to their head and and it goes off the rails. The power of one person thinking that they're God, they are better than anyone else or that they have. It's just not true. You see where it would go to his head? You know, he really was brilliant. I mean, he was a genius in so many ways. And he did lead the community. And, you know, it's just like every other one of these things. Uh, the people he surrounded him with kind of look at that too. I mean, Ron Cook talks about, you know, in the, in the thing about him carrying a gun, you know, and I, and I made a comment like that's just bull. When he walked into a gun with a holster, you know, a gun in his, in his, I said, this is, this is over, no longer soon on. So all the rules, again, people have to remember what they're there for. They were there to help drug addicts and alcoholics, people who needed their help. And suddenly all these life starters, and famous, it kills everybody. (laughs) I was laughing at this last episode. It said, uh, we have a $50,000 mortgage back then. Donating and and the uh, hustling team, as I said, brought in all kinds of goods and services. The pens and pencil business, that, his brother brought that business in. Bill Dieterich actually led that for a long time, was very lucrative. We were number two, the sales team. Okay. Made a fortune. Synanon made a fortune on the sales team. Mary has done such an amazing job, and also she has represented people, particularly the Synanon children, that I am so proud of her for doing, and I wish more of the Synanon children would come forward. Several have. You know, there's been a book written and so forth. But their experience, and yet, and I, and I really want to say, despite, and, and we need to look at it that from, from that perspective. My daughters, Rebecca Nomi and uh, Lita, and um, who's since passed away, but Erica, and all these kids that grew up in Synanon, they are fantastic. They are amazing, contributing human beings. Whether they would have been that way without Synanon, I don't know. But they're good parents. They care. They are integrated. You'll never find a more integrated society. We did not have a separation between blacks and whites and Chinese and Mexican. We were really an integrated society. Now, there were other problems that I'm, you know, I don't want to get into. I think we were terribly homophobic and there was okay. craziness there. But the Sinanon children, including Sari, have, are just amazing human beings. Thank you. A wonderful and unexpected treat to have you both. Well, thank you, Sari, for inviting me. Are you still there, Sari? Yeah, and thank you, Frankie, for, um, you know, speaking about this and continuing to tell your story and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, talking about these issues. 
I think we're all finding there's a lot that happened in America in this type of space between 60s, 70s, and 80s that we still are unwiring, understanding. Right. So much happened. And I, I, I hope that some of this will come back around like all things do and people will mm-hmm. start to realize how isolated we are and how much we need community. Yeah. My focus is talking to children who grew up in cults or children affected by their parents growing up in It's generational stuff. Yeah, and you have an amazing story, and I hope people go back to your story as well. And you are a Thank survivor, you. Um, and you have, you know, kind of dedicated this part of your life to um, uh, not just judging, but understanding cults and communities like these and where they went wrong, and that's powerful. You really warmed my heart telling me that. Thank you so much for being my guest here today. You're welcome. Thank you, Frankie, and um, continue the good fight. You're listening to The Frankie Files, FrankieFilesPodcast.com.